Good morning. morning. I'd like to begin this morning with a a passage that undoubtedly was read and expounded in services on the Feast of Trumpets all around the world. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. I'll begin in verse 15. It says, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now, evidently someone, or perhaps several people, in the church of the Thessalonians had come to the conclusion or had been led to believe that for some reason those who had fallen asleep, meaning their fellow brothers and sisters who had fallen asleep in Christ, would somehow not join them when Christ returned and when the transformation of the living took place. I don't know exactly what the teaching was or how they came to that to believe that, but in any case, apparently something like that <clears throat> was circulating among the Thessalonians. I'd also like to point out before we continue this word, he says he speaks of the coming of the Lord. It's an interesting term. It is, it is in the Greek parousia, also pronounced parousia, and I believe both of those are correct pronunciations, so take your choice. So at the parousia of the Lord, it's interesting because of the different ways in which it has been interpreted. The simple definition is presence, at the presence of the Lord. But as we're going to see, it takes in a little bit more than that. Continuing on in verse 16, <clears throat> For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So Paul is straightening out the misinformation that's been passed around. He's showing them that the dead in Christ will not have to wait. Apparently some believe they would have to wait. But no, they're going to, or at least they would have to wait before they could see their deceased loved ones. But he says, no, they will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be the Lord, with the Lord. So he corrects the misconception, and he explains to them that the, de- the living and the dead alike, all those who are in Christ, will rise to meet Christ together. And then he goes on to encourage them to be comfort, take comfort with these words. It's a very important scripture. It's one that we read also usually, or almost every funeral I've ever done, I've used this particular passage. It's always encouraging, especially to believers. And uh, it's one that, as I said, is very important. Now, again, the word parousia. I'd like to look at that for a few moments. Some of you may be aware, if you've ever read the... uh, New World Translation, uh, you will notice that the word coming is not there. You find coming of the Lord in all the other translations, the King James Version and, other, and the, some of the modern English translations, but everywhere the word parousia is used in the Greek in the New World Translation, which is, belongs to the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society, uh, the word is simply presence. Now there's a reason for that. You see, back in 1914, or back before 1914, uh, they had predicted that Jesus Christ would visibly return on that date, on that year, 1914. Well, when he didn't show up, they had some splaining to do. Excuse me. We have any water up here? This says Jeff. I definitely want to drink out of that. In any case... 
uh, they had some explaining to do. Uh, Christ didn't show up, so what did they do? Uh, could they say, well, we were just wrong? I didn't really want to say that. So what they said was, well, there must be some other significance to this date. You know, that's, that's something people are, tend to do when they're wrong about their date setting. Uh, they'll, they'll attach some other significance to it. That happened in 1844, the William Miller movement, when Jesus Christ did not show up later, the Adventists uh, said, well, that date is still significant. Uh, that is the date that the investigative judgment began. That's the date when Christ went into the most holy place, thank you, in the sanctuary. So that's, that's, uh, that's something people do. When a date turns out to be wrong for the second coming, they find some other significance and attach it to it. In this case, <clears throat> the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, the, the Watchtower Society, decided that, well, wait a minute, we were not wrong about the date. Uh, we just didn't realize that this word parousia meant presence. So they said, no, Christ did come on that day, on that, in that year, and he has been present ever since. So they have, you know, the, the, the uh, kingdom halls all over the place now. The kingdom has been established, but it's spiritual. And when you look at scriptures such as every eye shall see him, what does that mean? Oh, every spiritual eye shall see him. So they begin to revise the various texts that pertain to the parousia, and make it simply into a spiritual presence and not an actual visible coming of the Lord. Now, other people have, done, have, have played other games with that word. They've looked at it, some of the uh, preterists. I not, not, don't know if you're familiar with preterism or not. It's the belief, uh, full preterism is the belief that Christ returned. This has already happened. The day of the Lord happened in AD 70. The parousia took place then, and, but it was spiritual. He didn't visibly come, but he came spiritually. And some even go so far as to say, after that date, you don't find any evidence that any of the apostles were still around, including John. After that date, the true church had been caught up, taken to heaven, and that's where they were. And uh, now then, after that, true Christians, when they die, then they get their spiritual bodies right away, and they go up into the kingdom that's in heaven. And so that's, uh, that's the way they explain it. They use the word parousia to explain Christ's visible presence in the event of A.D. 70 when Jerusalem was besieged and the temple was destroyed. That was the day of the Lord. And some of them see nothing after that to be of any prophetic significance. So it's interesting how this word can be interpreted. Today what I want to do, I don't want to talk so much about the coming of Christ, although it's related to that. I want to talk about something that's going to precede his coming. And this too grows out of, or the, the concept here, what Paul presents for us in chapter, in, in 2 Thessalonians, grew out of a, a, dis, a misunderstanding that some people had had. Apparently some thought either the day of the Lord had already come, and they did not, you say, what happened? We didn't get caught up like we were supposed to, like Paul talks about back in 1 Thessalonians in this previous epistle. So apparently they either thought that Christ had come and they missed it somehow, or it was some kind of different kind of coming, or perhaps they thought that it was so imminent it was about to happen any day now. I'm not, it's, it's unclear. I think the Greek would allow for any of those uh, ideas. But let's take a look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and beginning verse 1. And I want to talk about something that's going to, that Paul tells us, must precede the parousia. 
He says in verse 1, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling to meet Him, we beg you, brethren. Now this expression, our assembling to meet Him, undoubtedly the parousia, again the same word, the, the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our assembling, no doubt refers back to the same thing he's talking about in 1 Thessalonians when he talks about rising to meet the Lord in the air, our being gathered to Him. We beg you, brethren, not to be quickly shaken in mind or excited either by spirit or by word or by letter purporting to be from us. In other words, if someone claims to have received a revelation to this effect, don't believe it. If someone sends you a letter purporting to be from us, and Paul didn't know whether, apparently didn't know whether or not someone had done that. He didn't know for sure, I guess, what the source of the confusion was. He says, don't believe that or somebody comes along preaching it and claiming apostolic authority. Do not believe it. We've already told you about this, and this is not the way it takes place. He says, Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the apostasia, the rebellion, comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. A couple of terms there. The first is apostasia. I'm using the Revised Standard Version here, and... Uh, the word is translated rebellion. In the King James Version, it's translated the falling away. The rebellion, the falling away, and this is another, another one of those expressions that has found many interesting interpretations along the way. Some people believe, one of the, I think most of the reformers probably believed that, uh, not sure about that, but at least reformed Christians have believed it through the centuries, that the, the falling away took place. He, well, let me go ahead and first of all mention, he mentions someone who restrains. When the restrainer is taken out of, out of the way, we'll read about that in just a few moments. When the restrainer is removed, then this man of sin makes his appearance. And then, of course, it goes on to read, we go on to read about what happens to him at the parousia. But then the... An old interpretation is that when Paul was taken out of the way, when he died, then the, this apostasy grew worse and worse. People began to fall away from the truth. He was the one restraining it and keeping it from happening. But then the church began to fall away. And eventually, uh, by the time you get out to 2nd, 3rd, and 4th centuries, you see it's departed significantly from the apostolic faith. And then eventually, what emerges out of that is the papacy. And that's the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. That's the apostate one. And so the rebellion is complete. And this continues on for a number of centuries. Uh, reading that, however, when I read this text, the impression I get, very clear impression, is that this is something that occurs just prior to the parousia, that this mystery of lawlessness is something that is in place and will continue in, in place until just prior to the parousia. So if that's the case, it's hard to imagine that the papacy is the fulfillment of this particular prophecy. He goes on to describe him, this uh, man of lawlessness. I also mentioned that uh, this, there's a variation in the text here. Uh, this translation says man of lawlessness. The word is anomios, nomos meaning law, anomos or anomios meaning no law. Just as theist refers to theist, you know, th refers to God, one who believes in God, an atheist is one who believes in no God. So, anomious, 
this man of lawlessness. The variation is hamartius, which is the word that means sin. It really doesn't matter which is correct because you read in 1 John 3, 4 that hamartian is anomious. Sin is lawlessness. It's the same thing. So here is the man of lawlessness. He says when he is revealed, he says he calls, he's called the son of perdition here, which is a title that's given to Judas Iscariot as well. And here's a description of him. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. I would say this is probably metaphorical. This doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a temple built in the time of the end. If there is, that's fine, but it doesn't necessarily mean that. This is probably metaphorical because from Paul's perspective and the perspective of those people hearing him, those who, who knew about the temple and knew of its importance, that anyone who went into the sanctuary, he proclaimed himself to be God. That's where God you know, was uh, supposed to have dwelt. Anyone who goes in there and proclaims himself to be God, that's a really, really big and serious thing. So in other words, this is a way of saying he is going to play God, whoever this fellow is. Now, back to the word apostasia before we go further. As I said earlier, we sometimes interpret this, and it has been interpreted to mean uh, a falling away within the church, within Christianity. Some people have thought that this was a, some event that happened back in the 90s when some people changed their doctrines. And that thus this prophecy was fulfilled, the man of sin appeared, but it seems that that's not exactly what Paul had in mind. I'm, I'm quite sure that's not what he had in mind. You see, this word apostasia, it can certainly refer to uh, a falling away within the church, a, a, a shifting away from the truth of God into error. That's certainly apostasy. We see apostasy, though, all throughout the centuries. You see it very early. There, was, there were apostasies taking place even in the apostolic church. There were collective apostasies. In other words, whole congregations turning away from truth. You see that across the centuries. And you have individual and personal apostasy. And the Bible even tells us about a apostasy from which there is no reform. There is no, you cannot escape it. How, how so? What is that? It sounds kind of scary, an apostasy from which there is no reform, or for which there is no reform. Uh, that's the apostasy that the book of Hebrews talks about. And uh, what, what, he's what he means there is referring to is a personal apostasy when one goes so far into sin that then finally he, he's locked into a room, as it were, and he's locked in. He cannot escape. He cannot escape. Why? Because the door is locked tight. Here's the key, though. From the inside. It's locked from the inside. He locked himself in. And so that is a form of personal apostasy. So this word can be used, apost apostasia, uh, variously. It also is used in Josephus to refer to Jewish people who had turned away from God's law. It's any kind of rebellion, any kind of departure from God to falsehood. You see it in Romans, the first chapter, which tells us about mankind anciently, that they knew God, but they did not retain God in their knowledge. And they turned away from God to serve the creature rather than the creator. This was a form of apostasia. You see it happening in, in and around the, the uh, 
the world even today. It's not necessarily something that strictly uh, pertains to the church. It's any kind of rebellion of turning away from the truth of God at whatever level. In Romans chapter 13, I'd like to take a look at that briefly to explain further what I mean here. In Romans chapter 13, Paul says, beginning in verse 1, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, this is something I think is sometimes misunderstood. Paul is not saying that every dictator that rises on the scene is God's agent, or that he's a man of God, or he's a minister of God, or he's, he's there because God put him there. In some cases, he's there because he murdered other people to get there, and that's not the work of God. What he means is that all, what he's telling in this whole section here, is that all legitimate authority, meaning the legitimate rule of law, finds its origin with God. And when legitimate forms of authority become corrupt and depart from that, from the legitimate rule of law, and become some kind of self-serving system for those who are at the top, that is not what Paul has in mind here. You look back at the Roman Empire, you see that you had both of those things going on. You have, there were times of legitimate rule of law. But sometimes you had some corruption. A lot of times you had some corruption. You know, it's not... Uh, I think uh, the way the senators in the time of Julius Caesar voted him out of office, uh, I, doubt, I don't think that had uh, uh, God's approval written on it. You know, they cast their ballots in the form of daggers. <laughs> so they took him out of office and replaced him. But nevertheless, you see this kind of corruption taking place. But in it all, in the governments of the world, you see the legitimate rule of law. Let's read further and see what he says here. It is therefore whoever resists the authority, meaning if it's a legitimate authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works. Now some of them are, so obviously he's not talking about those who are, is he? He's talking about what a ruler is supposed to be. Rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So again, he's obviously talking about legitimate forms of authority and governance. In verse 4 he says, For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you, if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath to him who practices evil. Again, this is the ideal. You do see this in governments in the world. Uh, and he's talking about legitimate rule of law. But what happens when you have revolution. Very often, not always, but often, uh, when we look through history, we see when revolutions occurred, when you see there was some kind of oppression, perhaps it involved poverty, and it involved misrule, and injustice, and things like that, and along comes someone who takes up the mantle, and he decides he's going to bring about changes, and he, goes, he, he claims the voice of the people, of course, and he gets a lot of people on his side. He leads a revolution, and the idea is to overthrow the illegitimacy that is presently there, the injustice that's there, and to replace it with something that is just and something that is truly uh, helpful to the people under the, the new system. What sometimes happens, though, 
is it is the, the old system is replaced with something far worse. That sometimes happens, and we see it happening in history. And that, that, by the way, if a legitimate form of rule, the rule of law, is replaced with something worse, that's a form of apostasia. That's a form of rebellion. So anytime there's a rebellion against something that is godly that's in place, you know, human rulers oftentimes are very imperfect, and yet they have a system that, does have, that will have the principles in place that Paul is talking about here. Uh, a rebellion against it is apostasia. So I think, it is my opinion, you don't have to agree with it, that this is not talking about something inside the church at all. It's talking about something in the world. It's talking about an open and widespread rebellion. We see rebellion all throughout the, the ages. We see it everywhere. We see, uh, as we're going to see, the mystery of lawlessness at work has been at work for centuries, and it's still at work today. Uh, and from time to time, it, uh, it, it is worsened in some places. But uh, uh, the, the implication here is that there will be an intensified uh, time of lawlessness led by a man of lawlessness. And again, he, he plays God. This, this alludes back to, this. Uh, I think you see an intertextual echo here of Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I'll just briefly go back to Isaiah 14. I'll just refer you to Ezekiel 28 without going there. But in Isaiah 14, this is, really this is a poetic taunt against the human king of Babylon. Now we often read this and apply it to the devil because, well, I would agree that the devil is in the details. He's in the backdrop for sure. But this is a poetic taunt against the king of Babylon. This is how a ruler can start out uh, doing well and then end up in what we call apostasia, a falling away, a falling away from what he had, uh, something that was good to something that's not good and brings on the wrath of God. Verse 12, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, or day star, son of the morning? Again, keep the poetry in mind. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations, for you have said in your heart, I will send into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the Most High. Here you have the spirit of lawlessness. Anytime a ruler, whether spiritual or human, takes the place of God, that is the spirit of lawlessness, apostasia. So he started out... He's the shining one, the son of the morning. He had everything going for him. And then what did he do? He let pride lift him up and destroy him. And the same thing in, concerning the prince of Tyre in Ezekiel uh, 28. won't turn there, but uh, you get the point here. So back to 2 Thessalonians. It seems that you have the same thing here. 2 Thessalonians, once again, back where we were in chapter 2. Again, he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God, echoing what you see back in Isaiah 14. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you this? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now here we, he talks about the restrainer. So you have the restraint, you have the man of lawlessness, and now you have the restrainer of lawlessness. So what is this restrainer? Again, some think it's Paul. Uh, some believe that it was uh, the existing Roman emperor at the time. 
And then once he was taken out of the way, in other words, when he died, he was replaced by Nero, who uh, fiercely persecuted Christians at one point, especially during his insane years. So they believed that the man of sin was Nero and that the one who restrained this mystery of lawlessness from emerging in the manifestation of the man of lawlessness, who was Nero, uh, this, that was the previous emperor. But that, that, that's, that's quite a distance, I would say, from the Perusia. So that's a little bit, uh, well, questionable, to say the least. I don't think that's what Paul is talking about either. So he says, so let's continue on again. Here he says, uh, for the, going, continuing in verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness, that's anomious again, is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And when the lawless one, that's anomos, lawless one, will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth. He's alluding back to Isaiah chapter 11 and verse 4. And you find a repetition of this, or at least a, an intertextual echo of it in, Re in Revelation 19, verses 15 through 21. So uh, he's, he will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by the appearing. This is ep epiphania, from which we derive epiphany. The appearing and his, here it is again, parousias, or parousia. Perusius. The parousia of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with power and with pretended signs and wonders. So let's analyze this. He says that someone is, you have the restrainer of lawlessness, you have the man of lawlessness, you have the mystery of lawlessness, and you have the restrainer of lawlessness. What do you suppose the restrainer is if it's not Paul? I don't think it is. If it's not the existing emperor at the time, I don't think it is. Well, I think there's a logical answer, and I think we find it in Scripture itself. Remember that this person, this man of lawlessness, is come, he, his coming is, is by the activity of Satan. And he does these pretended signs and wonders. So think about that for a moment. Where do you find something like that? What, what would it take to restrain something like that? That's who is behind the mystery of lawlessness. It's the devil himself. What does it take to restrain the, the devil? Of course, a lot of people say, well, this is talking about the Holy Spirit. I think, I think there's something else here involved. Look at Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. And once again, this is my opinion as to what is the best argument here, who the restrainer is. Daniel chapter 10, verse 10. Daniel says, <clears throat> Suddenly a hand touched me, which made me tremble on my knees and on the palms of my hands. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly beloved, Understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you while he was speaking these words to me. I stood, stood trembling. Then he said to me, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. So this is a powerful spirit being who comes to Daniel in response to Daniel's prayer and fasting. And tells him that your words have been heard, and I'm, I've come here now to grant you your request. Verse 13, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. What in the world could that be? Obviously, it's a powerful, evil spirit being that withstood this spirit being who had come to Daniel. And this suggests something, doesn't it? 
that there are principalities and powers at work behind the scenes in the affairs of this world. This particular spirit being is referred to as the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and he withstood this spirit being for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So here you have what, what this is telling us, and you see a, an echo of it in Revelation chapter 12, where we see that uh, the dragon and his angels fought uh, with Michael and his angels. And you see what is happening in the celestial realm has an effect on the earth. And so you have these principalities and powers, good and evil, at behind the scenes, and what they are doing, their activity, influences kings of nations and what is going on on the earth. So here you see this particular spirit being uh, in conflict with the prince of the kingdom of Persia, and then Michael comes to help him. What are they doing but restraining the spiritual principalities and powers that would take history in a different direction? They're restraining. They're in battle, spiritual warfare, this in the celestial realm. So it would be, it's my opinion, that the best explanation for the restrainer is it's, it's found right here in Daniel 10. It's the, the, the spiritual principalities and powers, the, perhaps Gabriel, perhaps Michael, we don't know for sure, but there is a restraining power in the celestial realms holding back this mystery of lawlessness. Now he says the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And what he means by this is you see it manifesting itself here and there. You see it in the persecutions that you face there in Thessalonica. He mentions the persecutions in his letters, both his letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, he, you see a, the mystery of lawlessness manifest itself in the persecutions against you. You see it manifest itself in other places in the world. And you and I, when we look back through history, we see manifestations of the mystery of lawlessness all over the place. We see it in our own country today. We see it around the world. But what we're told here is there is a restraining force, something holding it back. So when you think... It's gotten as about as bad as it can get. Think again. It can get worse. Once the restrainer is called off, once he's called in, then the mystery of lawlessness will, come to, will have its full effect in the world. And I think that's what the Apostle Paul is describing here. Don't think it happened in the past. The mystery of lawlessness, oh yeah, we see it all over the place. But the final mystery of lawlessness, when it emerges in full force, under the direction of the man of lawlessness, that will only occur when the mystery of lawlessness is given full reign by the removal of the restraining power. And Paul says that has to happen first before the parousia. Now, again, back to this word parousia. Paul uses it there, in, as I mentioned. He uses it in verse 8. He says, and then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth, uh, citing Isaiah 11 and verse 4, and destroy him by his epiphania and his parousias. Now, both of those terms, 
Interestingly enough, now some people will look look at go to the Strong's Concordance, look up the look it up and see that they ha they have different meanings, and pick the one you know that fits their particular theory. Uh, both of those terms, and and again, parousia does mean it does mean a presence, but it also was a technical term in Koine Greek and was used in reference to uh, the arrival of a ruler. For example, if, uh, if the Roman emperor uh, visited one of the cities and one of the surrounding, outs one of the outlying provinces, then they would make special preparations to meet him when he came. And they called it, when he arrived, they called his arrival the parousia, the parousia. The Latin term, if you were speaking Latin then, you called it Advent. You wonder where the Advent of our Lord comes from? Well, that's a Latinized form of parousia. And this is a reference to the coming. So the translators, when they translate parousia coming, they really uh, they actually capture the intended meaning here because it does speak of the arrival, even though technically it might have the meaning of presence, it also refers to the arrival, and very clearly here, both these terms, epiphania and perusia, both apply to the, are both applied to the arrival of the king of kings, something that you might normally apply to a Roman ruler during that period. Paul here applies to the king of kings himself, Jesus Christ. So at his perusia, and then he speaks of the parousia of the law, lawless one as well, after the activity of Satan. Verse 10, and with all wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth. Interestingly, what you see here, if my understanding of this is correct, you find, find the lawless one who exercises great political power. And then you see that also there's this religious element involved. Since the devil is behind him, then he does all these pretended signs and wonders, so there's a religious element. And you know that's exactly what you find in Revelation 13. You find it symbolically described there uh, as two beasts, one that comes out of the sea having seven heads and ten horns. That represents the political power. And then you have the second beast, which is supporter, his backer, uh, the one who causes the world to worship the first beast. That's the two-horned beast arising out of the earth also called the false prophet elsewhere. And so you see the same two elements there in this system that emerges at some point. And of course we know that it's in existence in the time of the end because in Revelation 19, which pictures the coming of Christ, you see that both those are cast into the lake of fire. So this is pretty clear that Paul is talking about the same thing here. The lawless one is a political power that emerges in the world. I'm not going to identify it. I'm not going to tell you when it arises, nor will I tell you when the mystery of lawlessness is finally unrestrained. I don't, have, I don't put dates on things like that because when I do, I can guarantee it'll be wrong. <laughs> but these are just things that Paul says must precede the parousia. And I don't think we've seen this yet. I don't think we've seen any of this yet. But notice again in verse 10, it says, And with all wicked, wicked deception for those who are to perish because they refuse to love the truth. It's they, the reason that they perish is they refuse to love the truth. In other words, they had an opportunity, but they didn't. 
It says, therefore, verse 11, therefore God sends upon them strong delusion to make them believe what is false. Uh, you can read that and you think, well, that sounds an awful lot like predestination to me, that God is orchestrating this whole thing. He sends them strong delusion because He doesn't want them to believe the truth. He wants them to believe what is false. No, no, that they want to believe what is false. So what God does is He takes away the restrainer and the, restraint, the, the, uh, the mystery of lawlessness does its job or its thing. And uh, in other words, lawlessness runs rampant. And then these people, that serves as strong delusion for these people. But see, they've already made up their own minds. You might wonder, why would God take away the restrainer? Why would God allow the mystery of lawlessness to have its full effect in the world? Well, I, I can't answer that in detail, but I can say this that when you find situations like that, when lawlessness is rampant, when persecution is, is intense, then this has an effect, the effect of sifting, a sifting effect. It separates those who love the truth from those who do not love the truth. And I think that's what Paul is talking about here. So it's, uh, it, 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 it speaks to those who are on the fence, one side or the other one side or the other. And so that appears to be what is going on here. Verse 12, so that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you from the beginning, or as one variant reads, as the first converts. And for that reason, some modern English versions say, as first fruits, as first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So that to this He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm. And this is the admonition that comes out of it all. You've been misled by someone. Someone has come along and claimed that He's uh, given you misinformation or some, through some mechanism you came to believe what is not true regarding the parousia. But Paul says, no, no, we see the mystery of iniquity that's already at work. It will be intensified before the parousia. And then Christ will come and rescue his people out of the mystery of lawlessness. And here's the admonition. So then, brethren, this is the exhortation. Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the mystery of lawlessness to this day continues to be at work. We see manifestations of it here and there and we see it across history. But before the end, the restraints will be removed and the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Between now and that time, and if that time does arrive within our lifetimes, then the admonition, the exhortation is still for us. It's something that we can apply daily. Stand firm and hold fast to God's word and to his promises.